standing for our sermon scripture reading, which is taken from Hebrews, Epistle of Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 20 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Mike gave that uh, us to uh, use our time, regularly scheduled activities, um, break from those to get on and help but think to myself, I'm so glad I'm an HBO Max guy. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a whole sermon there, um, but that, that's not our sermon uh, this morning, and uh, be glad I'm not, uh, an extemporaneous person, because uh, if I was, we would be a long time, um, because I would just keep going, uh, not because I would have anything particularly good to say, but... Um, but it is uh, the last Sunday of the calendar year and also the last of uh, these sporadic sermons on prayer, uh, praying like the Bible. And so it seems fitting uh, to bring both to a conclusion with a benediction. And so here we are this morning in Hebrews 13, verses uh, 20 through 22, the writer of the letter commences his prayer, this blessing, with the words, Now may the God of peace. We're going to spend a lot of our time this morning focusing on how the words, God of peace, frame the rest of this benediction and, and can inform the way we think about and worship God, the way we live in response to God, and of course, the way we pray. This, after all, is a sermon series about prayer. It's also the day after Christmas, uh, and perhaps some of us are feeling a little bit like Charlie Brown when, in exasperation, he shouts from the school stage, Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Well, sure, Charlie Brown. Enter stage left, Linus, blanket in hand. And then he begins to recite uh, the powerful words of Luke 2, 8 through 14, and noticeably drops that security blanket. Those words uh, that he says end with, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. If you hear nothing else this morning, friend, hear this. Belief in this message about Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, comes with the promise of peace for those who will receive it. Now, there are four main points for us to consider this morning that flow out of the text 
One, God is peace. Two, God makes peace with us and provides peace for us through the Son. Say that again. God makes peace with us and provides peace for us through the Son. Three, God equips us to be peacemakers through the Spirit. And lastly, God is glorified through the peace he accomplishes. So give him glory by longing for and striving for peace. God is glorified through the peace he accomplishes. So give him glory by longing for and striving for peace. To acknowledge that God is peace is really to simply affirm the words we've referenced here in verse 20. But what do we believe when we say that God is peace? Well, I think it should mean nothing less than looking at the whole of Scripture and seeing that ever since Adam and Eve acted in open rebellion in the peaceful garden God created for their enjoyment, since then God has actively sought to reverse the effects of the war men and women wage against him, against one another, that is, men and women created in God's image, and against God's entire creation. It's, but it's, it's not sufficient, I think, to just say that. When we say that God is peace, it's more than simply God's vocation. Uh, let, me, let me explain it this way. To, to say this, that, that it's part of his very essence that God is peace. Uh, if I were to ask Blaine... Uh, who he is. Um, and Blaine, congratulations, you've made it into a sermon illustration. I, th- I think you've arrived. Um, but Blaine, if, 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 if you were to be asked, you know, what, uh, what is it, or who are you? It would be totally accurate, factual for him to say, well, I'm a student, right? Um, but in a few years, he'll walk across the stage, uh, hopefully, you know, for the last time, unless, you know, uh, he's got other designs. Um, but, you know, he'll walk across the stage, receive a diploma, and at that point, it would no longer make sense for Blaine to explain or define himself as a student, right? He will cease to be a student at that time. And it should not cause him, though it perhaps for some it does, it should not cause him existential dread, right? But God will never cease to be peace. The peace is one of God's eternal communicable attributes. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It's, it's, it's very good news for us. In fact, it is part of the good news announced in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because the peace that Jesus extends to his enemies is a peace that knows no end. And this really 
brings me to our second point. Um, but uh, to be honest, we'll never, we'll never really fully leave the first point. And, and, but the good news is I've also got a shortened version of our second point. It sounds a lot like our first point. The short version of our second point is this. Jesus is peace. The longer version, of course, uh, God makes peace with us and provides peace for us through the Son. The fact that Jesus is peace is undeniable. First and foremost, as a, as a member of the Trinity, the Godhead, he possesses all of the same attributes and is of the same substance of God the Father and God the Spirit. Uh, for sure, uh, there's some divine mystery going on here, and, and I don't fully comprehend all of these things, uh, and, and I won't attempt uh, to try to explain the things that I don't uh, understand fully. Mystery is a great word uh, for us to latch on to here. Uh, but we don't really have to, to go uh, down those trails to unpack this reality that Jesus is peace because the, the writer of the letter of Hebrews um, has already gotten to this subject uh, back in Hebrews 7 and 8. Um, now, if you've been uh, worshiping with us um, recently, or you've been a part of our Sunday school class, uh, the name Melchizedek uh, is going to be one that's freshly on your mind. Uh, and, and Hebrews 7 and 8 get to uh, the subject of Melchizedek. And I will admit uh, that there are parts of it that are a little hard to follow. Uh, but if you read it, you will certainly catch this, I hope, that Jesus is a priest and king of the Melchizedekian order. That's a, that's a mouthful, uh, but it's true. He is a priest and king forever, uh, not because he follows the line of Aaron, but he is a priest and king forever after the order of Melchizedek. And who again is Melchizedek? Well, uh, for starters, he's king, not just a priest, but he's the king of a place called Salem. Remember that for your Bible trivia, but also remember it for this, because what is Salem? Salem is peace. That's right. Melchizedek is the king of peace. Jesus, Hebrews 7 tells us, is the indestructible resurrected heir of Melchizedek and is to us both a perfect priest who acts as the guarantor of our eternal covenant with God and he is our righteous king of peace. Now, these truths not only inform us of who Jesus is uh, in our benedictions in which, you know, where we want to sound really smart, um, they also inform us what it means for God as the one being who is the God of peace. So look with me again to see what I'm talking about here uh, in verse 20 of Hebrews 13. It says, now may the God of peace, you know, we're, we're really, you know, hitting that hard. But then that next word, who, 
uh, you know, there's, there's not a comma there, but there very easily could be to, uh, to set up, you know, uh, a greater uh, description of who God, this God of peace is. Who is this? It's, it's th- that God raised Jesus from the dead after the blood of Jesus served as the righteous and perfect sacrifice of our sins. So uh, one can't help but think, really, uh, if, you're, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, uh, that the writer of Hebrews, you know, he's, he's writing this on a scroll with one hand, and another, he's holding up another scroll from the Old Testament, uh, and, and likely Ezekiel 37. Uh, Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 26 say this. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Did you catch that? Did you catch, you know, first the shepherd language? You know, clearly see, we see a parallel between Hebrews, uh, our passage in Hebrews. And then also, again, the covenant of peace is synonymous with everlasting covenant. I know it's been a full Christmas weekend and there's no telling uh, how many cookies have been consumed by us collectively at this point. Um, and, and so, yeah, yeah there's, there's a sense in what we're doing this morning feels a little bit academic. But hang with me because it, it really truly matters. It matters because when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Brothers and sisters, he is inviting us and all of those who will hear his words to embody peace because the God of the universe embodies peace. The God who created the heavens and the earth is neither aloof nor is he hypocritical. He expects those who desire to be his royal heirs to do as he has done, to love as he has first loved us, to seek and savor peace as he first created it and is restoring it through the cross and the empty tomb. And our Savior, the King of Peace, as we've said, is also the great shepherd of the sheep. We see the connection in Ezekiel 37, uh, and it's also in Ezekiel 34, both of which speak of the Lord God as the great shepherd, and it speaks of the eternal covenant of peace. But I think we can also, uh, without going into texts that we're 
you know, not as familiar with, I think we can just think back to our beloved 23rd Psalm, right? Um, what is it that the Lord extends to his people in the 23rd Psalm if it is not serenity, tranquility, safety, and security in spite of hostilities? and future blessings of a peace so established that there are riches of oil, food, wine, and an abundance of other provisions in his house where his righteous rule of peace is without end. This, brothers and sisters, is to say that this benediction in Hebrews reminds us to pray prayers that are filled with hope we can and should continue to expect that our God of peace will conquer sin, war, and death. But also, the imagery of Jesus as the great shepherd should cause us to recall that these are not mere theological abstractions. God knows you. And as hard as it may be to believe sometimes, he not only knows you fully, but he loves you. He loves you more than you could ever love yourself. Jesus loves you and establishes everlasting peace for you. It is not a peace that we will know fully in this lifetime, but it is a peace that has been secured by the love displayed at the cross. Now, this prayer in Hebrews 13 is not only a prayer of exaltation as we give thanks to God for being a perfect God of peace. This benediction is also a petition. And our third point speaks to this by stating, God equips us to be peacemakers through the indwelling of the Spirit. As we've already noted, uh, Jesus reminds us that it is the peacemakers who get the privilege of being heirs of God. Now, the proper response to this is not to say, peacemaker? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I got that covered in spades, right? And in fact, I'd venture to guess that a person who thinks he's cornered the market on peacemaking, probably has more in common with the rich young ruler incapable of giving up his riches than Jesus, the Prince of Peace. True peacemaking is costly and requires both perseverance and a determined conviction. A conviction that knows our Savior secured peace for us by way of the cross and that it will require us, that it may require us, to come and die as well. I think Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 2 states it like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance, or run with endurance the race is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, the the Christian life is filled with many tensions. Tensions between one thing and another. Uh, And we hold up mysteries that we've already said that are not easily comprehended and certainly no more easily explained. So I will submit to you that when the scriptures speak of the Christian life at times as a life of combat, this, this is a, these are real metaphors that are valid and are given to us in scripture. But granted, oftentimes uh, for us as New Testament believers, I think it's important that we see that, that these terms of combat that are given to us uh, speak of combating a spiritual evil. Right? Frankly, though, I, I tire of the metaphors. I tire of the way in which so much of the Christian imagination is taken up with combat. Uh, we've indulged too heavily in sermon illustrations from World War II. And we've looked far too often for inspiration from, from, frankly, the wrong Civil War generals rather than looking to examples of faithful Christians like John Lewis or Will Campbell, uh, who time and time again did the hard work of turning the other cheek and said in word and in deed that being peacemakers is not just resisting war, but is actively seeking to love our enemies. We can't continue to have the imbalance and think that there won't be consequences. Let me, I think, perhaps ironically show you the legitimacy of this concern via a war story. Uh, So there I was uh, in the rural part of the Kandahar province of Afghanistan, the heartland of the Taliban. The unit that I was assigned to, the 2nd of the 502nd Infantry Battalion, was engaged in a critical mission to take the fight directly to the enemy on their home turf. Uh, That day I wasn't in a foxhole or a poppy field or traveling down an ancient sandy road. I was observing uh, what we called our battle space, our whole area of operations, from our tactical operations center. You know, it kind of looks like those scenes that you see on, you know, movies where uh, these people are staring at, you know, giant screens and people are making important calls. That's Tactical Operations Center, uh, and they, they really exist. Um, and, and, I was, and I was in there in part so I could know whether circumstances might require me to travel to a potential site of injury or to take the next helicopter available to the big airbase in Kandahar if a soldier were to be medically evacuated there to the hospital, or uh, to pay respects to a soldier's remains before those remains made their way to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. Uh, sadly, these are, these are things I experienced multiple times. But on this particular mission, on this day, I saw our intelligence and operations teams in front of these big screens 
They started to get very excited as they tracked a couple of men on a video feed, get off of their moped, singular moped, uh, and engage in some kind of unknown and therefore suspicious activity under the canopy of a tree. The video was a bit grainy, and as I said, their actions were somewhat concealed by the tree above them and our eye in the sky up above. But the intel folks came to the conclusion that, that the actions were those of men who were burying a cache of weapons, or maybe worse. Maybe they were uncovering a cache of weapons, uh, the type of activity that warranted an airstrike from on high. I watched, I saw something different. They weren't moving up and down in the act of digging. They were practicing the Muslim call to prayer. It helped clear up the confusion on the matter, and the operations center moved on to other more genuine concerns. My concern for us is this, that when we only ever see the Christian faith as a war or a fight for us to engage in, we begin to see everything in every one we don't immediately recognize as friendly, as a deadly foe to be opposed and vanquished. But this isn't the way of Christ, nor is it the way of those who are called to imitate him. If you see or if you hear someone start to explain the words of Christ away when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, I'll give you some advice. Put your fingers in your ears and move on. What's so hard about peacemaking that can be summed up in the words of Baptist minister and civil rights leader Will Campbell, who said, Jesus died for the bigots as well. In saying this, standing for this truth, he neither ingratiated himself with those who hated his African-American brothers and sisters. After all, he's calling them bigots, right? He's not, he's not endearing himself to them. But he also didn't gain popularity within the movement of which he belonged when it would have been far easier to paint the Bull Connors and the men wearing their bedsheets for a night out on the town as subhuman monsters. But our call to live the Christian life cannot shrink away from the expectations of Hebrews 12, verse 14. which says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is a tall order, a seemingly impossible task. I think often of a song which says, you talk of hating war, but where's your own peacetime? Living peacefully with others is not only not for the faint of heart. It is not for those who are unaided by the Holy Spirit. Remember we said this is a petition. So what does it mean in verse 21 that the God of peace will 
equip you with everything good that you may do his will. It means that while God has commanded us to live this way, he makes it possible for us to live this way by pressing into his Holy Spirit, by calling on God to empower us to live like Christ, our King of Peace. It also means that we should see other ordinary means of grace in our lives as opportunities for us to be reminded and encouraged to live lives of peace. So, uh, you know, in our worship service today uh, and every other Sunday, we go through a regular order of service. We go through a liturgy, this drama where we see God pardon us of our sins and make peace with us through the cross. And we know that it's on the basis of God forgiving us, even while we were enemies of God, that we should in turn forgive one another. It's hopefully evident that we see the same picture of peace uh, given as we celebrate the Lord's Supper on a monthly basis. And it's even in our greeting time. Yes, our greeting time. Uh, Do you know what some other denominations in the Roman Catholic Church call our greeting time? They don't call it grip and grin. Uh, They call it the passing of the peace. That's right. Saying uh, peace, my brother, is not just for hippies. It's actually a thing that people do that we would consider to be rather stuffy and highly liturgical. I suspect the only reason we don't call it the passing of the peace is in the Baptist tradition is because, well, we're very afraid of sounding like Roman Catholics. Um, but, but that's neither here nor there. It's, it's yonder. Uh, the point is this. If we stop to think about what we do and why we do it, our Christian practices are full of opportunities to be encouraged and empowered to live as God has called us. And God has called us to live lives that reflect who he is. God is peace. Now this is our our fourth and final point. A point that does not require much, if any, explanation. So I know uh, some of you are going, man, four points. And uh, it's taken a while to get here. But listen, God is glorified through the peace he accomplishes. Give him glory by longing for and striving for peace. Long for the peace that only he can provide. Strive for peace, as we have said, through the spirit-filled power that he supplies. Take care that you do these things and you will have the mind of Christ, our great shepherd and guarantor of our eternal covenant of peace. And this mind will in turn shape your deeds and your actions in ways that will make you pleasing to the sight of the God of the universe, the God who is redeeming all things and bringing glory to himself by accomplishing peace. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, these words provided to us in Hebrews, this benediction that not only instructs us on ways that we can and ought to pray, but also gives us incredible insight into how gracious and loving you are toward us. Lord, help us to be so aware of those truths that it spurs us on to love one another in kind. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.